Well, if you have a Bible this morning, please grab it and open up to the book of John. We'll be in the first chapter this morning. We're still just getting our feet wet in the book of John, but today marks another significant change in the book as we're introduced to Jesus, not Jesus in the abstract that people talk about, but Jesus as a person who begins to gather disciples to himself. As Linda said, focus on the ball that's actually there. So I've got a question as you're turning. That our world seems to be continually on the lookout for hidden talent. I mean, we have, we've got talent scouts all over the sports world. I mean, there are, dish, there are auditions held all over the place for music, for acting, for dancing groups, for this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> Many parents start their kids off at three or four years old learning to play piano or violin, some of them not so successfully. <laughs> not, they don't, and they don't do it necessarily because it's enjoyable, but because they're hoping that maybe, just maybe, they'll, be, they'll put their kid on the right track to becoming the next Mozart or the Itzhak Perlman or the Joshua Bell. Or you have people posting YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video in the hopes that someone of influence will find them and finally know their real talent. Because when someone is a star, people start showing up. Lots of people. And when someone is a star... Fans seem to just show up out of the woodwork. <laughs> but have you also noticed that it seems, in almost all cases, that that stardom is pretty short-lived in the scheme of things? And why? Why is that the case? Well, because we want something more. <laughs> We're not... If we... If one thing runs out, we'll go to the next. But we're, what we really want is something more substantial than a mere mortal star who is rising in popularity, even though we might enjoy seeing the coattails flapping in the air for a little while. The other problem is that many people want to admire somebody, admire a star from a distance, but aren't really interested in being changed by their stars. Stardom is often short-lived because stars have fans, but not really followers, people seeking to become like them. So here we are in the book of John, and John is in the beginning of the first century, and he was a, John the Baptist was a star of sorts. He had gathered quite a following, but what was John the Baptist's aim? Was it really to be a star and gather more fans for himself? No, it was actually for so much more. It was to gather followers for somebody else. Disciples for someone greater. To prepare them for that someone greater. And that someone greater, Jesus, showed up. And his disciples were ready to follow. So hopefully you've gotten to the book of John this morning, chapter 1. And if you, had, if you have, would you please stand with me this morning in the honor of the word of God that we are going to read this morning, John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You can have a seat. What's happened here? When Jesus shows up, people follow. What then does it mean for us as a church, for these guys here? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? This is a huge question that we're going to answer in part today. The hope we're, what we're hopefully going to be able to answer by the time we're done with a much bigger view by the time we're done in the book of John. But here are some basic essentials of what a disciple of Jesus looks like, how a disciple becomes a disciple, and what it looks like to follow Jesus. So first, pretty simple, disciples follow. Verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So disciples follow. The people who believe Jesus go where Jesus is going. This is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. There, are dis there were in that day, and there are today, but there were in that day disciples of all sorts of teachers and leaders when Jesus was around. It was usually a term for, some, for a Jewish teacher's a rabbi, as we're told in the text, they're students. They would follow him around, they would learn from him, they would seek to become like him. So how do these first followers of Jesus become his disciples? Look, in this look in the text. John sees Jesus walking, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples, verse 37, heard him say this. They hear. Their ears, are, their ears are paying attention. You see, these two guys don't start from ground zero, like some of us potentially do. These two guys had already been disciples of somebody else, John the Baptist. And do you remember why John the Baptist was, was here? If you go back up just a little ways in, 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 your, in your Bible, verses 6 through, not, through 8 of chapter 1, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. So John comes on God's mission to prepare the way, preparing the way by bearing witness about this true light, Jesus. Last week, we saw him do this by saying the same thing he says here in verse 35. He says it in verse, 39, in verse 29. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then he says in verse 34 from last week, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John is saying all of this so that people would believe in Jesus. And if this is what he's teaching, 
then what he is teaching his disciples is that they would be actually able to recognize Jesus when he showed up. John is actually preparing his disciples to become someone else's disciples. But what's amazing to me, and maybe you'd notice this, is that the first time John shouts out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, none of John's disciples seem to follow Jesus. It's only here in verse 35 through 37 when it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Jesus doesn't come to him this time, but passes by him. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God! And these two disciples understand right at that moment that John is telling them this so that they will hear and believe. Faith comes through hearing. And not only just believing, but that they will follow. And this bears some time here. It's not enough to believe true things about Jesus and sit in the stands, so to speak. That's not real believing according to the Bible, according to the Gospel of John. Real believing is both listening and following. Some perhaps well-intended Christians have tried to make a separation between believers in Jesus and disciples of Jesus. They'll either say, well, you can believe in Jesus, that is, be saved, but there are only certain believers, basically a, a second higher class of believers, who become disciples. Or they'll say, well, you believe first, you save, you're saved first, and then later you'll become a disciple. Like, you're sitting on the sidelines for a while, and then coach calls you in. I'm not sure how prevalent these views are these days or if they have influenced you in particular. But from this text and a whole biblical context, they're just they're simply not true. The pattern of these then disciples of John is normative for Christians. The pattern is to be a believer of Jesus is to be a, is to be a disciple of Jesus. A believer of Jesus is a disciple of Jesus. A believer of Jesus is a disciple of Jesus. They're right along, they're right tied together. To be a believing hearer of who Jesus is, is to be a following student of the Christ. And John the Baptist doesn't hide the identity of the one whom they are to believe. He's the Lamb of God. And again, from last week, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial son who saves by being sacrificed and securing victory through his death. John is telling them who they are to believe and what, is, what the heavy call of believing in Jesus is going to entail. Now, I have to confess, I don't stay much up with sports. But this past week, across the headlines, as you probably saw, was the very sudden and tragic death of 18 all-time star basketball player Kobe Bryant. And while I was reading a little bit about his the tragic death, and I also his the I also read about his fans' response. And actually, one of the one of the things that came up in a fan in terms of fans was actually wasn't from his death. It was from 2016, during what was called his farewell tour, his last games before retirement. Two guys from Italy, and maybe you heard, maybe you saw this. I don't know. Two guys from Italy who thought Kobe was their hero, they quit their jobs, 
and they spent the next several months and over $30,000 traveling to all of the 16 games of the farewell tour. All this for a mortal basketball player who can't save them, who can't do for them what they really need. But here's a question, just a hypothetical question. What if Kobe had told those two guys, get in the game? See, there is a difference between the admirer in the stands, even if they've paid $30,000 and flown all the way from Italy, and the guy sweating it out in the court with the legend. We need to have this mindset when it comes to Jesus, who is so much bigger, so much greater, so much more important than a basketball player. He is the immortal Savior and Lord. He can actually save all of us. And who can and will do for us what we really need. The question is, will we believe in him? And by believing him, get in the game. Disciples follow. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Secondly, they not only follow, disciples obey and they stay. Listen to this, verse 39. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. It's about four o'clock. You might have a note in your Bible about that. So the disciples begin to follow Jesus. But as they do, he turns around and asks them a question. What are you seeking? Okay, on the one hand, this is very much a, can I help you with something? Truth be told, it is a little unusual to be followed by two guys and neither of them really saying anything. If you were in that situation, you'd want to say, hey, how can I help you guys? What are you guys doing? But let me ask you this. Have you ever seen someone you really admire or who's really kind of famous and they're walking through an airport or you see them at a conference or at the fair and when they're, when they're not doing something that, when they're not doing what they're known for, they're just kind of just there and you want to go up to them, but it's a little, it's a little awkward going up to them. And what comes out of your mouth is usually not your best lines. It's funny. We dream of these moments of meeting someone we admire, meeting our heroes. But then when it, comes to actually, when it actually happens, we don't have anything prepared to say. So when the Son of God comes to the earth and walks past two of John's disciples and they follow him, not saying anything, they are as human as human can be. They're just like us. What are you seeking? Thank God he asked that question. It helps break the ice. But on the other hand, this is a powerful question because it doesn't just come from anybody. Again, the Son of God comes to earth and he asks two guys, what are you seeking? These two guys are following Jesus. But why are they following Jesus? Why would you say you're following the Son of God? 
people give all sorts of reasons. I'm following him because I want to get to heaven. I'm following him because I've been dragged to church. I'm following him because he can help me move up in the world. I'm following because, well, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. What's your reason? Well, here's the disciple. Here's the two disciples' reason. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? (laughs) Again, they are the sheepish and shy followers of someone famous. And I love how scripture is so honest about people. These are not special people. These are just folks like you and me. And of all the questions they could ask the ruler of the universe, they ask, where are you staying? Where's your hotel? But we have to understand this. The main word in this, pa- in this question is not where. It's where are you staying? In other words, the disciples aren't looking for an address. They're, they want to be where he is. They're, not lo- they're looking for time with Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this, this request? Where two guys just come wanting to spend time with him. Well, he doesn't give them an address or directions. He doesn't even question their motives. They probably don't have the most sophisticated or theological or most Christianese of motives for seeing him. Let's just put that out there. But he sees that they want to be with him. They even call him rabbi, meaning that they at least have some interest in learning from him. So how does he respond? Well, I'll start it this way. He doesn't, here's how he doesn't respond. He doesn't respond with, I don't have time for you. You're too poor. You're too rich. You're too fill in the blank. You're too sinful. Or you're not holy enough for me with, to be with me. Do you know who I am? You think you can just walk up to the king of kings and be part of his life? Who do you think you are? He doesn't say any of that. Later in this book, Jesus is going to tell people in John 6.35 and verse 37, I am the bread of life. Whoever, anybody and everybody, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. How does Jesus respond to those who believe in him and follow him? Come. And you will see. No address given, no directions, because he's going to lead us there and be with us there. This is the pattern of our Lord and Savior. When he commissioned his disciples, including us who believe in him, after his resurrection in Matthew 28, he says, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, he ends with this reassurance at the end of the book. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Come and you will see. This is an invitation from Jesus, but it's also a command. Do these guys believe him? Then come. Nothing is stopping them from coming. 
But faith without works is dead, as James says. If they stop here, great. They got to meet Jesus. But if they stop there, they don't believe in him. Where Jesus is found, people follow. Jesus is God in the flesh, a figure so compelling that if he says, come and you will see, you are the biggest fool in the world to say, no thanks, I got my selfie with the Savior and I'm off to my own life. Praise God that the disciples here didn't have selfie sticks with them. Not that it would have mattered if they did. They wanted to be with Jesus. So when the door was open, they came right on in. So they came. They obeyed Jesus, and they saw where he was staying. Come and you will see is a profound statement, but it's also very down-to-earth and immediate. They came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, about four in the afternoon. Disciples of Jesus obey him, and they stay with him. You know, these guys never go back to John the Baptist after this. They don't go back to their old way of life. They also don't try to go on with their lives. Jesus is here, and this is where they are to stay with him. Perhaps many of us are familiar with the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. I'll just give a quick recap. Mary is busy. The text says distracted and serving, which is actually a really good thing. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to Jesus. And Martha gets mad because Jesus isn't having Mary help her do what she believes to be worthwhile things. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. How did Jesus respond to Mary or to Martha at that time? He didn't say that what she was doing was worthless. He told her that he is there and he wanted her to stay with him. He said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Martha's activities were just fine in their place. And if their place takes the place of Christ, it's out of place. One of our issues in our day is busyness. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Crazy, in his book Crazy Busy puts it this way about how busyness robs our heart of staying with Christ. For most of us, it isn't heresy or rank apostasy that will derail our profession of faith. It's all the worries of life. Disciples of, of Jesus obey and stay. So in this service this morning, we have all made time in our schedules to be here. Because some way, some, however your motive, this is important. Let us be reminded by this passage with these two disciples that Jesus has come. And for those of us who follow Jesus, let's listen to him. Let's obey him and let's stay with him. When Jesus shows up, people follow. Disciples follow and they obey and they stay. I mentioned that Jesus' command is more profound than, come with me to the place I am staying and see, with the, see the place where I am staying. It's much more significant. Come and you will see. When they stayed with him, something happened. 
We're not told exactly what. But they didn't just believe they didn't just believe because John the Baptist told them after this moment. After following Jesus, after obeying and staying with him, leads to our third point. Disciples know and are known and make known, I would even add. They finally knew for themselves. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So this little introduction sentence here, verse 40, tells us about one of the two disciples who came from John, Andrew. How is Andrew known in this sentence? Andrew is known in this sentence, and in the rest of the Bible, actually, as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. Now, Bible question for the church. (laughs) Who is better known, Andrew or Simon Peter, who we call the Apostle Peter? It's Peter. And we'll just note this here, that sometimes, actually oftentimes, the disciples of Jesus often seem second to other disciples. A good chunk of the New Testament is devoted to what God did through Peter and what Peter wrote to the church. Only a few sentences are devoted to Andrew. And for some of us, that weighs pretty heavy on us. And we feel like we're just an insignificant blip on the radar of the disciples of Jesus. You and I have a choice at this moment. We can remain stuck in our funk, so to speak. That we're a lot like Andrew. Not a whole lot said about him. And want to get the press like Peter did. Or we can repent and receive Jesus' merciful help because Andrew gets an amazing, amazing privilege right here. You know, even though Andrew seems to be passed up by his brother later on, he gets to be one of the first disciples of Jesus. And not only this, Andrew gets the privilege to point out Jesus to others. Disciples of Jesus tell someone. They tell others, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said. That's for everybody. That's not just for the special few. He first found his brother, his own brother, Simon, verse 41, and said, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Andrew follows Jesus. He spends time with him. And what is this first thing he does? He finds someone he deeply cares about and tells him, We have found the Messiah. Let me take you to him. What's interesting here is that sometimes our own families, when it comes to sharing the gospel, the good news that Jesus can save by his death for our sins and bring us new life by his resurrection, it's actually sometimes in our families the most awkward to share that. Why? Because our families are usually the people most familiar with our warts, most familiar with our failings. But they are also the most likely to see a change in us when we meet Jesus. 
So when Andrew meets the real Messiah, which is the Savior and the true anointed King of Israel and the world, his brother Simon is going to notice the change. Our families are actually a really good place to start sharing the gospel. We care about them. We love them. And we want, the, we want the best for them, so we ought to be those who love them with the gospel. I found Jesus, and I want you to meet him. Andrew was a disciple who knew. He had followed Jesus. He had spent time with him. And it wasn't just John the Baptist's words now that had convinced Andrew. It was Jesus himself. We have found the Messiah. So Andrew brought his brother to Jesus, and as one theologian wrote, perhaps as great a service to the church as any man ever did. And what happens next? Jesus looked at him, at Simon Peter, and said, You are Simon, the son of John. Jesus already knows who he is. But this isn't, Jesus already knows who I am. This should cause us a response like Simon Peter had later in his time with Jesus when Jesus told Peter in Luke 5, Put out into the deep and let your, down your nets for a catch. Simon Peter was a fisherman. And Jesus was preaching at the time, and they were fishing at the same time. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus knew who Simon was without him. Jesus knew every secret, wicked thought, every shameful deed, every harmful word that had come from Simon, the son of John. And Jesus knows your name. And every wicked thought, every shameful deed, every harmful word that has come from you and me. In our sin, apart from Jesus, we have rejected him and we stand condemned. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be made disciples of Jesus. We are totally at his mercy as to what he'll do. Simon has been brought to Jesus, but there is nothing that Simon or you or I can bring to the table that makes Jesus accept us. What does Jesus say? That moment. Disciples are known. They are known without Jesus, and they are known with him. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, that is, without Jesus. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That is, with Jesus. Peter, the disciple, is known with Jesus. Now, let's get this clear. Cephas is Aramaic, the language spoken at the time, which if you translate into Greek is Petros, which we, we say, see here is Peter, and if you translate that into English, it means rock. What's Jesus doing here? 
He's laying claim on Peter's life. Peter's life is no longer his own. He gets a new name, perhaps a nickname, if you will, in Christ. But it's really a new name because Jesus is establishing the trajectory that Jesus, that Peter will have with Jesus. <laughs> now, if you know anything about the life of Peter, his life before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down, Peter's more like a boulder in a china shop than the firm, bold, unwavering apostle whom Jesus used to shape the world as we know it. For the rest of the Gospel of John, Peter is called both Peter and Simon Peter, which may indicate that struggle of the identity Peter had in Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus' disciples are known by him, and Jesus is the one who establishes their identity and the trajectory of that identity. That brings the question, doesn't it? Whose identity does your life reflect? Yours? Or Jesus's? May God grant us to be identified with Jesus, not merely ourselves. Disciples know and are known. They obey and stay with Jesus. They follow him because when Jesus shows up, people follow So the question for us at the end here is, what are we seeking? Jesus' question is put to us. What are you seeking? What am I seeking? When we hear, behold, the Lamb of God, which I hope we all have today, how will we, we respond? Will we be the fan sitting in the stands, but who stays away from the game, even though the star of this game, this the game to beat all games, says, come, and you will see? Or will we hear and be the best possible talent scout, not claiming any credit for ourselves, and follow and obey and stay and know and be known by Jesus where we can bring to our families, our neighbors, our mess, our friends, our co-workers, and others the news, we have found the Messiah. Jesus has shown up. Let's believe him and follow him. One of the ways we follow Jesus is in obedience is by keeping the command that we remember him through what we call communion. So I'd ask those who are serving right now to come forward.